Murder in the North, Episode 12, The Lonely Murderer. A black and white photo from the 1970s shows an average, middle-aged man with dark-rimmed glasses and receding hair. He's wearing a white coat with a logo on it, a crisply ironed shirt, and he's staring straight at the camera. Arnfin Nesset is in his mid-forties and exudes authority. A few years after this image is captured, the snapshot can be seen all over Norway. The police suspect Arnfin Nesset of having killed 60 patients in just three years. You're listening to Murder in the North, a podcast about some of the most shocking murder cases in Scandinavia. Our account of these cases is based on sources in the public domain, including interviews, press releases and court proceedings. Some narrative details were seen as irrelevant to the plot and therefore left out. This podcast series contains scenes of violence that some listeners may find distressing. You're listening to a true story, as researched by Jana Argard and told by me, Jenna Sharp. Arnfin comes into this world on a cold October day in 1936. He's born on a small dilapidated farm in a wooded valley in central Norway, not far from Trondheim. The family home has since been torn down, but the name Arnfin Nesset continues to reverberate in the valley to this day. Parliamentary elections are held in the year of his birth, the last before the outbreak of World War II. And Norway is thriving when Arnfin is born. Industry is booming, and export figures are up, but not all Norwegians share in this prosperity. Arnfinn's mother is unmarried, and there's a great taboo on children born out of wedlock in what was then an extremely religious country. Eventually, his mother marries and moves to the nearby town of Freuer, leaving Arnfinn, who's a thorn in her side, with her grandparents at their modest farm on the island of Fosenhall. Little Arnfin is relentlessly bullied. His classmates won't let him forget that he's an illegitimate child. Guilt and shame epitomize his childhood. His strict and deeply religious grandparents love him, but show no physical affection at all. The shy lad is often at home by himself, passing the time sewing, knitting and crafting. Arnfin is lonely and wishes he'd never been born. His Christian faith shapes him. He compares himself to Jesus, and in his mind, his absent mother is Mary. In a world that has little to offer him, he takes great comfort in his religious faith. Although physical strength isn't Arnfin's forte, his military service in 1956 is a happy time. The discipline, the rules and the camaraderie agree with him, and being of service gives meaning to his life. 
Now that he's no longer seen as an outsider, as a bastard, unloved and abandoned by his mother, he's able to move on from his tough childhood. After completing his military service and a year at a Christian boarding school, Arnfin finds his vocation in nursing. I promised God that I'd always be at his disposal, he will later say. At the age of 22, he begins training as a nurse at a hospital in Telemark. He completes his final year on the surgical ward. That's where he meets Karen. Karen has dark curly hair and a beautiful smile. Arnfin graduates as a surgical nurse specializing in anesthetics. And when he's 30, he marries Karen. Soon after, the couple have a son and the family move to Orkdale, a small town with a population of around 12,000. Religion has a strong hold in this region and that suits Arnfin perfectly. Nursing is his vocation, he often says, and after his difficult, lonely childhood, he finally finds his place as an adult. Everybody likes him. It's the mid-60s, the town is growing steadily, and there are lots of jobs in healthcare. At this point in time, nearly a quarter of people in Western Norway work in the care sector. Arnfinn starts off as a nurse, but in the space of only 10 years, he works his way up, until in 1977, he becomes manager of Orkdal's nursing home. From then on, he's responsible for around 110 seriously ill and elderly residents. It's about the biggest step possible on Orkdal's social ladder. The administrative duties suit Arnfin, but that doesn't stop him from walking around with syringes and medicine cups when he checks in on his patients, many of whom are dying. He's well-liked among the staff, partly because of his black humour. One of the people he works with at the nursing home is his wife, Karen. When Arnfin is appointed, he has his picture taken for the local paper. He's wearing a white coat with a logo on it and a crisply ironed shirt. He gazes straight into the camera with a serious and somewhat stern look on his face. The nursing home is brand new. In no time at all, just over a hundred beds are occupied by elderly patients, many of whom are seriously ill. They're well taken care of by the attentive and sympathetic nursing staff. One evening, a carer on the night shift peers into one of the rooms and sees Arnfin leaning over the bed. The patient is dead. The employee contacts the doctor on duty to report the somewhat unusual situation, but he's brushed off. Soon it's back to business, but people working at the nursing home are beginning to talk. They're wondering about the large number of patients who have died within a short space of time. And why is Arnfin always walking around with syringes? Some of the staff are thinking of sneaking into the mortuary to see if the dead patients show any puncture marks. They're saying that Arnfin is spending a lot of time down there in the basement without a valid reason. Patients often pass away after a visit from Arnfin. 
One of the nurses later tells the court about a situation that bewildered her. He gave an injection to an ill patient, saying that the doctor had prescribed the medication. Then he said, now she'll either get better or she'll die. The patient died. Arnfin is widely seen as a friendly, supportive and effective manager. But however much they like him, there's a growing disquiet and concern among his colleagues. They find puncture marks on patients' arms, even though the files mention no blood tests or other injections. Then again, the patients are so unwell that their deaths can just as easily be ascribed to natural causes. The nurses would like to report their misgivings to the senior doctor, but worry that it will get them into trouble. What if their suspicions prove to be unfounded? A few years later, one of the nurses is going through the pharmacy's medicine orders and is shocked. Among the orders is a request for the medicine Curacit, also known in the medical world as Suxamethonium. She has experience of buying supplies for hospitals and recognized Curacit as a muscle relaxant that has no place whatsoever outside a surgical ward. Curacit is used in very small doses in electroshock therapy because it paralyzes all muscles simultaneously. And it's used during surgery. One of its potential side effects is paralysis of the lungs, which leaves a person unable to breathe unaided. An overdose of Curacit leads to suffocation within minutes. The patient will still be fully conscious, but paralyzed, helpless, and incapable of moving. On the 25th of November, 1980, the nursing home's board of directors is told about the Curacit order and the suspicious deaths. Arnfin admits that the poison was bought first to put a stray dog to sleep and later to get rid of a pine martin. He manages to downplay the seriousness of the case before the board of directors and they decide to drop the matter. Arnfin keeps his managing role and makes sure that the rest of the curacet is returned to the pharmacy. Later, it emerges that Arnfin kept back a total of 244 lethal doses of the poison, twice by submitting requests via colleagues and a further three times by forging medicine orders after the doctor in charge had approved and signed them. But by the time the police are informed, the pharmacist has already destroyed the returned curacet without checking how many doses were actually used. In February 1981, the nursing home's senior doctor introduces a new rule. From now on, two people must be present when a patient is given an injection. The doctor suspects that patients are being given extra morphine, a well-known method of active euthanasia for dying patients in a great deal of pain. Eight days after the new rule is introduced, Arnfin calls in sick. He's burnt out and heads to a Christian sanatorium in Pyonang to recuperate. It's there, in March, that the police visit him for the first time. The police haven't been alerted by a doctor, 
but by weekly magazine Nidaros from Trondheim, which not only received a few tips about malpractice, but also about the purchase of poison. The journalist in question reports the suspicions to the police, and then suddenly the investigation is in full swing. Because, as the journalist asks the police officers, why would a nursing home manager need three litres of curacid? After his treatment, Arnfin doesn't return home. On the brink of a nervous breakdown and feeling an urgent need to explain himself, he heads straight to a secure psychiatric unit in Ostmarka. He checks in voluntarily, but after giving the police an unsatisfactory explanation for the purchase of the medication, he's ordered to remain at the secure unit for the time being. A few days later, on the 9th of March, 1981, Arnfin is taken into custody. Due to a police leak, the entire Norwegian press has descended on the small town of Orkdal. One journalist even hires a crane to film the initial hearing on the second floor of the town hall. Once Arnfin starts talking, he's charged with not one, but with 21 murders. The case, which is growing bigger by the day, is being investigated by the Serious Crimes Unit in Oslo, and a specialist agency within the National Police. Nearly 60 deaths are now being investigated, not only at the nursing home in Orkdal, but also at Arnfin's previous two workplaces. Both journalists and police officers are staying at the same small hotel in Orkdal. Rumours and theories are rife. Newspaper headlines describe Arnfin as the angel of death, as a deviant, a monster. All articles about the mysterious death in Orkdal are accompanied by the same black-and-white photo. Due to the huge number of people involved in the investigation, from colleagues to family members, there's a never-ending stream of interviews that keep bringing new details to light. Eventually, the intense media scrutiny becomes too much for Arne Finn's wife, and she files for divorce. But there's little concrete evidence. Arnfin took the list of medications home with him and left it in the shed. That's all. No autopsies were carried out on any of the patients who died at the nursing home in the past three years. Death certificates and reports by medical staff are either imprecise or non-existing. Besides, it's difficult to prove statistically that the number of deaths in Arnfin's nursing home is higher than it is anywhere else. Most of the patients could have died at any time. That's how seriously ill they were. This prompts a debate. How useful would it be to exhume the bodies and perform autopsies to determine the cause of death? Besides, some of the deceased were cremated, and curacid is known to become increasingly difficult to trace over time. On that basis, the authorities decide to not disturb the dead. The nursing home staff, on the other hand, are queuing up to share their suspicions and observations. Arnfin himself talks to the police as well. In March, he's questioned for more than 100 hours. 
in April and May for more than 200. In total, he'll spend nearly a thousand hours in the interrogation room, without a lawyer present. In the early 1980s, it's not common practice for a lawyer to be in attendance while a suspect is questioned. That's why Arnfin faces the police on his own when he clears his conscience. During his first court hearing, Arnfin says that in the three years he worked at the nursing home in Orkdal, he killed so many, he's unable to remember them all. There may have been more than a hundred. He confesses to the police and to the judge that he began killing from one day to the next. He describes a total of 27 cases, but some of his confessions are a bit dubious. For example, it turns out that he was on holiday in Rhodes when, by his own admission, he administered the poison to one of his victims. But why did Arnfin murder these defenseless people who were dependent on his care? The police have proof that he embezzled just over 10,000 Norwegian kroner, just over 750 pounds. But that's nowhere near enough to prove that money was the motivating factor. Arnfin himself makes contradictory statements. Death can be a release, he tells the police. He also talks about the pity he felt for the elderly and sick people, and that the nursing home needed the beds. Sometimes family members of future patients would phone to check if there was space. Arnfin's lawyer describes the serial killings as an act of compassion. That's one way of putting it, and quite a callous one at that, as the method used was extremely cruel. The victims choked while fully conscious. Eventually, Arnfin tells the police something that may be closest to the truth. Having the power of life and death gave him a sense of great satisfaction. He felt something akin to ecstasy when he injected the patients and waited for death to come. Like so many other murder suspects, Arnfin has to undergo psychiatric evaluation. The forensic psychiatrist concludes that he's neither insane nor psychotic, but that he has a complex personality with a lot of conflicting and sinister traits. As well as murdering many of the nursing home residents, he lied to them and stole from them, while to the outside world, he always occupied the moral high ground. In his role, he appeared to be the embodiment of decency and integrity. And yet the jokes he shared with colleagues often crossed the line of good taste. The psychiatrist concludes that Arnfin is not insane, but emotionally unstable and that he has various personality disorders. During the lengthy periods of interrogation and the many months on remand, Arnfin's life comes crashing down like a house of cards. He suffers from depression and is prescribed medication. He hides the pills and then attempts to take his own life by swallowing them all at once. I've achieved nothing. I'm unhappy and lonely, and I've been abandoned, 
he writes in his diary while remanded in custody. A few months later, he suddenly stops talking to the police, and ten days prior to the start of his trial, he unexpectedly retracts his statements. Arnfin is 46 years old when the trial gets underway. In court, he looks like a shadow of his former self. He wears a suit and a big collared shirt. He also sports a large pair of red-tinted sunglasses, which were fashionable at the time. He answers the questions in his distinctive, husky voice. He's very thin and often lowers his eyes when his lawyer speaks. He's charged with murdering 11 men and 14 women. And there are also a few minor charges, including misappropriation of funds and falsification of documents. At the time, the trial before the court in Trondheim is the longest in Norway's legal history. It lasts five months and is widely reported on in the press, both nationally and internationally. Psychiatrists play a major role in the case. The diagnosis of Arnfin's personality disorder helps paint a picture of a man who thrived on discipline, but lost his grip on reality as soon as he became the one in charge. Within the space of five months, the jury listens to a total of 128 witnesses. Because the suspect has retracted his confession, and because there's little forensic evidence, the prosecution struggles to present a strong case. The defense argues that the unprecedented amount of questioning pressured the vulnerable Arnfin into making false statements. But in his instructions, the judge reminds the ten members of the jury that Arnfin confessed his crimes not once, but multiple times to the police, to a judge, as well as to psychologists and forensic psychiatrists. If he's genuinely innocent, he could have said so much sooner. In response to the question whether the jury finds Arnfin guilty or not guilty of 22 counts of murder and one count of attempted murder, the foreman answers, guilty. The original charge had been 25 counts of murder. Arnfin is also convicted of deceiving his patients, embezzling 13,000 Norwegian kroner, the equivalent of 1,000 pounds, and forging medical orders. All three judges agree with the verdict, and on a cold February day in 1983, Arnfin is given the maximum sentence allowed under Norwegian law, 21 years in prison, followed by 10 years preventative detention. At this point, it's more than two years since the investigation got underway. Arnfin himself isn't in court that day. He's deeply disappointed that the jury has found him guilty. When Judge Carl Solberg announces the verdict, he does so to an empty chair. Arnfin doesn't spend long behind bars. He's a model prisoner and after six years in a high-security prison in Illa, north of Oslo, he's transferred in 1989 to an open prison on the island of Bastoy. 
Prisoners here live in private wooden huts of around 10 to 15 square meters. Arnfin is industrious and gets along well with the other inmates, but he still prefers to keep to himself. After 12 years in prison, he's released. He changes his name and moves to an undisclosed location in Norway. He tells the media that he tried to get the case reopened, but was forced to abandon these efforts because he ran out of money. Arnfin is now 83 and in poor health. He turns down all requests for interviews and doesn't want to talk about the case in any way, shape or form. All we're left with is that one black and white photograph of the man in the white coat, who looks us straight in the eye without betraying who he is and the secrets he harbours. From Podimo, this is Murder in the North. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. And for early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>